Hey, this is Gavin Jackson with the South Carolina Lead, and we're continuing our summer look at quote-unquote interesting stuff. Claudia Smith Brinson is an accomplished journalist of more than 30 years, having worked in Florida, Greece, and South Carolina. She's also taught at the University of South Carolina and Columbia College. But today, we catch up with her to discuss her new book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. This important history book does not read like a history book, though. That's thanks to her decades in journalism. Brinson writes tight, but still packs a punch when telling these critical stories that haven't always been told. And as we've talked with other authors recently, we continue to remind ourselves just how important reading books like Stories of Struggle is to our understanding of our present and future. Claudia Smith Brinson, thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here and so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about South Carolina and civil rights. To start, I want to focus on the chapter looking at the court case Briggs versus Elliott. Again, you gave us multiple perspectives, but tell us about this case and its importance nationally in the civil rights movement. Okay, well, Briggs versus Elliott starts in the 40s, and it actually starts, um, in my mind, with Reverend James Miles Hinton, who from 1941 to 1958 was the state conference president of the NAACP, and he was a bold and brave man. And at this point in time, um, black teachers might have as many as 60 children in a room and be paid a third of what a white teacher was being paid. And so there had been some lawsuits that were successful in other states. And so uh, he found petitioners, and that's not easy. You're asking people to risk their life. Um, Two petitioners who sued and won. And so uh, what is typical of South Carolina is South Carolina never yields on the first case uh, in terms of defending white supremacy. So what South Carolina immediately did was change the way teachers were certified to keep white teachers pay above black teachers. There were no graduate schools for black teachers or any black person in South Carolina. You would have to leave the state to get a graduate degree. And so they scaled the pay for the benefit of white teachers. But Hinton goes on then. He he never stops. He goes on to uh, voting rights. And this was Hinton's goal, was to always be working toward what he called first-class citizenship. Now, at the same time, there's a pursuit by the national NAACP for the opportunity to desegregate schools. And they decide that the best way to go is to start with higher education. And in the 30s, they start winning cases in Missouri and other states where the 14th Amendment is applied, which says that you can't take the rights away from uh, any citizen, they start winning. And so they're building the groundwork for what will be public school desegregation. Thurgood Marshall's uh, mentor, Charles Hamilton Houston, had actually come to South Carolina and had filmed how egregious the difference was between white and black schools. And you can see this uh, these films at uh, archive.org. Claudia continued to describe the differences between the white schools, which had all the modern trappings of a school in the 30s and 40s, including paved playgrounds, heat, electricity, libraries, and small class sizes. Black schools, however, were worse off, especially in rural Clarendon County, where the lawsuit takes place due to a lower tax base. Black school children brought their own water, fuel for the fire, and food. Textbooks were old and rejected from the white schools, and several grades were being taught by one teacher in an overcrowded one-room schoolhouse that black children walked miles to attend. So the way Briggs versus Elliott starts is that the 
parents in Clarendon County are aware of because they're trying to improve their schools, you know, from their own pockets, although they're deeply poor. And two brothers, Levi and Hammett Pearson, have been equipping their truck with uh, boards across the back to drive their children the nine miles that the children must have to walk from Davis Station, a rural area in Clarendon County, to Somerton. There are some a few schools that are closer, only seven miles one way. Jesus, yeah. So, yeah. so um, they have equipped a truck, and at some point they pull their resources and they buy a school bus. It works so poorly that the kids call it the sunshine bus because it seems to only work on the sunny days, not on the <laughs> rainy days when they need it. Um, they get some other parents involved. They buy a second bus, and they start because this is expensive and more than they can afford the bus. It's not just a bus, right? It's a driver and it's um, gas and um, engines repair and all this. They start asking the officials at the school district. And at this point, there are like a thousand school districts in South Carolina. So multiple school districts and at the county level, if they can have a school bus, white children ride to school, black children walk throughout the state. And they're refused over and over again. So these two men, whose sons are in uh, middle age and have been in World War II as veterans, their sons and other people in this community have this incredibly brave idea that's encouraged by Hinton, which is to sue for a school bus for transportation for their children. The lawsuit garners the attention of more than 100 parents and Thurgood Marshall, who was chief counsel for the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. And this, uh, so I won't make the tale too long, this becomes the Briggs versus Elliot that we know when um, Marshall and a, a little tinkering by the judge agreed that the time has come to ask for desegregation of schools because separate but equal, which has been established in 1896 in a railroad case, Plessy versus Ferguson, will never be equal. Separate will always be unequal. And so the parents are determined. and. And this is where I go back to the ordinary people who are going to do extraordinary things. They don't quit because when the second petition opportunity comes to ask for desegregation, the NAACP, worried about these terrible consequences for families, reduces the number of people signing to the 107 included parents and children to 46, 20 adults and their children. And most of the names that I've just mentioned, they sign again. They know, they know that they've lost almost everything and they're going to lose even more, but they sign again. Petitioners faced serious ramifications from white citizen councils, which Claudia describes as the KKK in suits. These powerful groups would blacklist African-American patrons, such as a farmer trying to buy seed or equipment, or force out others and their extended family from work opportunities. There were lynchings, kidnappings, church burnings, murder attempts, and more against these black community members who simply wanted to give their child an educational opportunity many never had before. And so what happens is, as most of us know, in Brown versus Board of Education, which is five lawsuits with Briggs versus Elliott, the first of the five, in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court says, as has been argued by Author Good Marshall and agreed to by Wadey's Waring uh, that segregation is in and of itself inherently unequal and that children in separate schools can never be equal in terms of the education they receive. And in 55, the Supreme Court uh, becomes wishy-washy and says, uh, with all deliberate speed by local 
uh, officials. And so what happens in Somerton is the local officials uh, surround their school and won't let, uh, aren't going to let any black children in. Um, and Thurgood Marshall has said, don't try this year. Yeah. It t- I mean, it's an, it's incredible when you look at how many years it took after that ruling for everything to really be implemented the way it should have been years before. But like you said, that's very South Carolina. But I, I do want to jump onto another subject. I know we've covered this so thoroughly, and I appreciate that because that's what you do in this book. You're giving us those perspectives. You're giving us those stories about the other people behind these moments and these names and these court cases. Um, but I want to jump to what we saw with the student-led sit-ins in our state. Uh, just really, Claudia, just tell us about those those movements that were led by students too. I mean, that's a, that's a different thing there uh, when we look at this in the, in the broader context of the civil rights movement. Yes. So these students are the grown children of those petitioners, so to speak, in terms of years. People know of the February 1st, 1960 sit-in by four students in Greensboro. But there have been sit-ins in the 40s and 50s in Oklahoma by the NAACP in Washington, D.C., with something affiliated with the NAACP, and then in Chicago with the Congress of Racial Equality. Both the NAACP and their founding and CORE, which is the abbreviation for the Congress of Racial Equality, were biracial groups. CORE had been founded from the parent organization of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which supported conscientious objectors. And many of the activists um, in CORE in 1960 are people who have gone to prison, including, for example, Beard Rustin, who was an advisor to Martin Luther King, um, rather than uh, fight uh, as a soldier in a war. And so uh, they are, the CORE people particularly, are expert in nonviolent direct action. And in South Carolina is um, James T. McCain from Sumter, who is a founder of the Sumter NAACP and has been fired from his principalships, two of them, um, because of his support of the NAACP and Briggs versus Elliott, and has been hired by a biracial organization, a Council on Human Relations in Columbia, and then by the Congress of Racial Equality to be its first field secretary in the South. And he's roaming the South, um, helping people with voter registration when the Greensboro sit-ins start. And they spread like, uh, the cliche would be wildfire, (laughs) but they spread very quickly through North Carolina. And by February 12th, they're in South Carolina. And CORE has foreseen this. And uh, they have a a white field secretary, Gordon McCurry, and they have James T. McCain, and they tell them, get to South Carolina, it's gonna jump the boundary. And it does because of a wheelchair-bound, charming, highly cooperative minister named Reverend Cecil Augustus Ivory. He can work with anybody. Um, He gets CORE and the NAACP working together. His students, the students of Friendship Junior College have come to him and said, we want to do a sit-in. And so uh, even though Rock Hill is rather dangerous as um, a textile mill town, and by that I mean that it has many, many members of uh, White Citizen Council and the KKK at low-paid jobs, and um, textile mills did not hire um, Black people except as um, firemen, you know. Anyway, he he managed to get CORE and NAACP to talk to each other and support these students, who then hold the first sit-in on February 12th in South Carolina, and the national media 
is just stunned. It talks about <laughs> the sit-ins have jumped into the heart of the Confederacy. <laughs> That's how South Carolina is perceived. Yep. That it's, it's jumped into the deep South. And, you know, people are excited, both excited and wringing their hands, depending on how they feel about this. Now, when the students from Friendship Junior College go downtown and they've been trained by Mr. McCain in nonviolent direct action, they understand that they are going to do something that is going to sound relatively impossible, but they pull it off. They are not going to respond to the beatings that they're going to receive. They're not going to respond to the names they're called. Um, they are going to leave quietly when it seems it's best to leave. And um, they are going to not confront with their eyes anybody, but if they're in a position where they must look at their oppressor, they're going to look with love. Think mm. about that. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, when the students go downtown, one of the uh, chief participants is Arthur Ham, who is also a military veteran. Military veterans are important in this because many of them have gone to World War II or to Korea to fight for democracy and then have come back to segregation, to not being allowed in the front door of a restaurant, to not being allowed to change, uh, try on clothes that they want to buy, you name it, sit in the back of the bus. So Arthur Ham is like six feet tall and 200 some odd pounds. And, and the couple of the other key lieutenants of Reverend Ivory are kind of worried about how this soldier is going to respond. And he walks back and forth drawing the attention of the angry young um, white youths who are burning cigarettes on people's backs, throwing ketchup um, and mustard on them, salt and pepper in their eyes, ammonia bombs are, are coming in. Arthur Ham just walks back and forth taking it. And then they decide it's time to leave and the police are have not protected them, but do escort them back to campus. And there we have the first sit-in in Rock Hill. And then it moves from Rock Hill on February 12th to Orangeburg on February 25th, Denmark on February 29th, uh, Greenville with high school students on March 1st. First and then um, March second and third in Columbia, so this is where the um, the historically black college and universities are. Now, there's one of the reasons they're stepping forward is they had hopes about Brown too, and they've not seen it. They've not seen um, the benefits they wanted. And another part of this is they have seen their parents be humiliated. They have seen their parents lower their eyes, take off their hats, say yes, sir, and no, sir. And this has made them furious and they want this better new world. It, it, isn't it interesting too, that they, they, that they are not engaging, but you know, especially when you're talking about this, this, this fire, this, you know, being seen what their parents had to go through. And, and you would think that, you know, the opposite would be true. We'd want to fight back, but, but here they are being peaceful uh, and, and really just, uh, taking it, but also making a, a statement as well, of course. Well, I, I asked people about that. Um, Chuck McDew, who was a leader at South Carolina State and became the second chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, he said, who had the guns? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said, if we had responded in kind, we were outnumbered, mm -hmm. we would be dead. He said that he was a pragmatist. So at SC State and Claflin, there, there are two very different guys that are leaders. There's McDew, who's a football player and has grown up in the north in a town that was fully desegregated with a steel mill. But his father played football at SC State, which was a football powerhouse, and his father wanted him to come to SC State. And Thomas Gaither, um, who is affiliated with the Congress of Racial Equality and has been reading Gandhi. And these students are attuned to Gandhi, not Martin Luther King. 
So McDew is a pragmatist, as that idea about guns says. He says, this is how we can win. We can win through nonviolence. He and Gaither see this in a, in a somewhat similar way, and that Thomas Gaither says, thinking visually, what are people going to think when they see a well-dressed young man or woman? They're in their Sunday clothes. You know, they're in their overcoats, hats, gloves, with their Bibles or their school books, sitting quietly while someone screams vile things at them. And so Gaither understands that there's a high moral plane that's expressed by the nonviolence, and he wants to live on that high moral plane. Uh, McDew understands that this is the way they can survive and keep furthering their goals. And so there are those, those I'm oversimplifying here, but those are two of the attitudes that coalesce in, yes, we're going to be nonviolent. And i got to say here, South Carolina, um, people are familiar with the the mid-60s pictures of Mississippi and Alabama with dogs and fire hoses. South Carolina does this too. It surrounds Morris College and Sumter with dogs to keep the students from leaving campus to walk downtown to pray. More than a thousand students um, marching in Orangeburg to go down to the center of town where there's a Confederate statue and a green to sing songs. Um, they are greeted with fire hoses and with tear gas. And it's a, a day in March that has below freezing temperatures. They're soaked and then they're locked in a stockade outside um, to stay in the cold. So um, South Carolina is just ferocious as those pictures that people are familiar with. It's just early and it's not being documented in the way that it will be later. There's so much more in this book. I wish we could keep talking about it. Uh, but it's one that people need to read to understand the civil rights movement on a deeper level here in our state, which still has major implications and lasting effects on people and policy today. But, Claire, with just a few moments, uh, tell us, what, what do you make about this you know, incredibly loud, racially weaponized political fight right now over critical race theory and teaching America's past? I mean, you're writing about how the state was racist. It was embedded in the Southern culture, in the institutions, in the white citizens' councils, in everyday life. Uh, how concerned are you about this frenzy debate right now over critical race theory and actual history that people already know little to nothing about? I think we're in a time where you can find a phrase that you can spread on social media and make it mean something it may not mean. And people who don't, who just respond emotionally rather than doing their homework are going to ride that as far as they can. And so I think we have many useless conversations <laughs> yeah. um, in this nation um, <laughs> that are on standing on false ground. Um, and it's also the danger of not really knowing what happened in our history if we aren't fully informed and thinking if we're just reacting with emotion and misinformation, then we're going to have these fierce and ugly debates and they're not really going to go anywhere. They're just, they're just going to polarize people and stall us in terms of making what would be the next and most healthful steps for ourselves. Think about raising all votes. I mean, what is the advantage in South Carolina, for example, if we just go back to South Carolina, to keeping people uneducated? Well, the thought then was they, they didn't want better schools because they didn't want better educated people because they wanted farm labor. 
the minds of the people in power, there was nothing in it for them to educate people. But what does this mean? This means that it's a poor state that's not attracting well-paying jobs, right? And it also meant in that period of time, uh, the second great migration where people are leaving by the millions from the South to go uh, where the good jobs are. And so, um, it's the same sort of thing with these, these useless conversations where you haven't done your homework to actually know what you're talking about. Yeah, that you are probably trying to keep your thumb on some people and keep them down while you elevate yourself. And the consequence is going to be that everybody's at a lower level than everybody could be. That the consequences are not just to the people you want to oppress, but to you too and are not to your advantage. Very well said. And again, do your homework and read Claudia Smith Brinson's book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina, that was published by the University of South Carolina Press. Claudia, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you about this important history in our state. Thank you. Thanks, Claudia. And thanks to y'all for listening to this latest episode of our summer listening series. 